We're continuing <laughs> our series today on the book of Revelation, looking at Revelation that, 2, verses 1 to 7. Please have your Bibles open in front of you so that you can not only follow along, but, but check that what I'm saying is in conformity with the living and true word of God. And welcome to you. Welcome especially if you're visiting with us on our Camden Parker at Cornerstone Presbyterian. Unfortunately, I have to rush off straight after church today. I, I, a flight was booked for me at 12 o'clock, so uh, I'll, I have to leave pretty much straight away. So whatever mess I might make with my sermon today, please uh, catch up the elders after church. I'll be there for morning tea. Did you know that right now there are some 55 church buildings for sale in Tasmania? 55 church buildings. It takes a lot of commitment, it takes a lot of sacrifice for a church community to purchase land and to build a church building. That takes a lot of sacrifice and hard work and dedication. So there must have been, in the past, at least 55 highly committed church churches that... Um, were so committed and were so willing to sacrifice that they had those buildings purchased and built. Communities that were at least three generations ago. Now, what is left? What's left of those highly committed church communities, those 55 communities, what's left of them? All that's left are buildings. All that's left are these, if you like, tombstones to dead churches. And in fact, the history of the church suggests a very often a three-generation pattern. A three-generation pattern. Often there is a church which is a, a church community, a body of people who are on fire for the gospel. They are actively repenting of their sin. They have a, a living faith in Jesus Christ. They are working hard for the gospel. They are holding firm to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of the Bible. And then there's the second generation. And the second generation are also working hard. And the second generation are also holding firmly to true doctrine. But there's no living repentance going on. There's no actual repentance going on in the community. There's not a, a living, immediate faith in Jesus Christ. The third generation, well, they see their parents working hard in the church. And they see that their parents are very concerned with maintaining the gospel and true doctrine but they don't see the repentance in the life of their parents. They don't see a living faith in their parents' lives. They see a mismatch between what their parents are saying and what their parents are doing. They see a hypocrisy in their lives. And that third generation are the ones who will drift off. They don't like that hypocrisy and they drift away. They give up leading a shell of a church. 
Now, Cornerstone was planted about 16 years ago. And what we are seeing right now in the life of our church are many who were babies and children when this church was founded and now moving into young adulthood. And it's brilliant to see so many who are here, who were even born into this church, now moving into young, young adulthood and who are even moving into positions of leadership and who are starting to serve in the church. It's absolutely brilliant. We'd love to see that. But the question I have is for the church at large, and the question I have is, what kind of a church are we handing over to our young adults and our teenagers? What kind of a church are we passing on to them? Will this church still be here in 10 or 20 years' time? Will this church still be here in 50 to 100 years' time? Or will we, like so many other churches before us, follow that same sad three-generational pattern of vibrant faith and repentance and hard work and orthodoxy, devolving to mere hard work and orthodoxy, devolving into nothingness. Will we follow that, that pattern, which we've seen so many times in the history of the church, a pattern which is now evidenced in our own state by 55 church buildings or so? Well, the bad, the bad news is this. The bad news is that there is no inherent reason why we wouldn't follow that pattern. There's nothing special about Cornerstone. We shouldn't think that we are exempt from all the trials and problems and temptations that other churches face. There's nothing unique or special about us that would mean that we wouldn't necessarily follow that pattern. But the good news is this, that we don't have to follow that sad pattern of decline. We don't have to. And we won't if we listen to and heed the warnings of Jesus Christ in his seven letters to the churches. And in particular, this warning that he gives to the church in Ephesus, which is most important for us to listen to today. It is most important. And Jesus himself says towards the end of this letter, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to what Jesus is saying, lest we fall into that awful pattern of the time which we see again and again and again. And so we are moving through the book of Revelation and here we begin a new section of this book. We've looked at chapter 1, which is very much an introductory chapter. In chapters 2 and 3, we have seven letters written to seven churches. All of these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all churches in the region of Asia Minor. And what you will see is that each letter is addressed to the specific problems and needs of each of those churches. 
And indeed, some of the things in these letters refer to certain cultural and geographical distinctives of each of those cities and churches. Having said that, Jesus wants these seven letters to be read to all the churches. All seven letters were to be sent to all the churches. So every church was to read and listen in to what was being said to the other churches so that they could learn from that. The point is this. These seven letters were to be read, carefully read and taken on board by every church, in every place, in every culture, of every language, in every age. These seven letters to the seven churches are very much for us here in Hobart in the 21st century. Let's give ears to what our Lord Jesus is writing in his love to his church. And so here we are at Revelation chapter 2. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, unblock our ears. Open our blind eyes. Soften our hard hearts. May we hear the faith, everything you are saying in this letter. And we pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. Jesus addresses his letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And I'll just say again that the, the, the scholars are still trying to grasp exactly what that means, to the angel of the church. Does it mean that there is a, a guardian angel given to, to watch over each church? Or does it simply refer to the, the, the preachers of the church, the teachers of the church? Because the word angel, its basic meaning, is messenger. Or is this referring to the prevailing spirit of the church? We don't exactly know, but it doesn't really matter, does it? It is directed to the church, and I would say in particular, it is directed to those who have some kind of responsibility for teaching the church. The angel of the church in Ephesus. And now Ephesus was the greatest city in the region of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It was the largest and the most prosperous of cities. And the city of Ephesus had received extraordinary blessings, extraordinary teachers had been given to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus. We could say that the cream of the first generation of the church ministered at one time or another in the city of Ephesus. So the that the church that is receiving this letter have received extraordinary blessings from God. Think about some of the people who have been sent to teach in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul taught there for two years. Priscilla and Aquila, gifted Bible teachers, taught in Ephesus. Apollos, another famous teacher in the first generation of the church, taught with great fervor in the city of Ephesus. And in fact, after Paul had passed through Ephesus for the first time, he returned to Ephesus 
for a two-year ministry teaching and preaching in the hall of Paramus, in the heart of Ephesus. And there were two indications of the deep and wide impact of this teaching upon the city. Two indications that came out in the reading that Adam brought to us before from Acts chapter 19. The first indication was that many people in the city of Ephesus had been caught up in magic, had been caught up in sorcery, had been caught up in this idea that we can manipulate our future and our circumstances by magic and sorcery. And these people had been so convicted by the gospel and so changed by the gospel that they brought all of their their magic books and their sorcery books and they brought them into the heart of the city and they piled them up and made a great bonfire of their books. And Luke records that the value of those books was 50,000 drachmas. If a drachma is a day's wages, if we count a day's wage being about $200 in modern terms, then we're talking about $10 million of books going up in ashes in the middle of Ephesus. And this bonfire was, was evidence that the gospel had had impact on the city. And those who were caught up in sorcery were repenting of their sorcery. And the second evidence, piece of evidence, that the gospel had really taken hold in the, book, in, in the city of Ephesus was the fact that Ephesus was famous for its temple to the Greek god Artemis, Diana, in, in, in the Roman pantheon. And the silversmiths of Ephesus were making a very good living from selling their idols to Artemis. But now the gospel was having such a great impact on the city that this trade in idols was collapsing and the silversmiths being revved up by their leader, Demetrius, caused a great riot in the city of Ephesus. And so this bonfire and this riot were um, evidence that the gospel had really taken root in the city of Ephesus and was having a wide impact. Note, please, that when the gospel begins to take hold of the city, that there may not be a, a great spirit comes, but there might it, it, it may well cause this upset and this uproar as it did in the city of Ephesus. So we've had these great teachers teaching in Ephesus. A New Testament book was written to the Christians in Ephesus. Timothy eventually became a pastor in Ephesus. This was an extraordinary church that had received extraordinary privileges. And now Jesus, one generation later, this is a generation later, inviting to that church. Here's a church that had been very much on fire. Now listen to what Jesus is saying a generation later. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden mountains. This is the words of Jesus who is near to his church. And he sees exactly what is going on in his church. 
And the church might appear to be thriving and the church might have appeared to be doing wonderful things. But Jesus is close and he sees below the surface and he sees exactly what is going on in the hearts of his people. These are the words of him who walks among the seven golden mountains. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. How beautiful. Jesus looks at this church and he sees that they are working hard. They are serving one another. They are serving the cause of the gospel and they are standing firm in the gospel despite attacks coming from left, right and centre. I know your deeds and your hard work. The word hard work refers to work that, that would usually make someone exhausted, that would usually tire someone out. Jesus knows that this is a, a, a church of hard-working people. And I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Here's a church that is exercising church discipline. By the way, there are three marks of a true church. Three marks. The church must be preaching faithfully the word of God or it is not a church. It must be faithfully exercising the sacraments of baptism and communion or it is not a church. And thirdly, there must be church discipline. It's not enough to hear the word of God, but if you're applying the word of God and encouraging those who are putting it into action and rebuking those who are not. That's what church discipline is. It's an essential mark of the church. If that's not going on, then it's not a church. And Jesus looks at the church in Ephesus and he sees church discipline going on. You cannot tolerate wicked people. And that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. Because Jesus had warned that the wolves would come in sheep's clothing to deceive Christians, to deceive the church. And I think one of the prevailing characteristics of the church in 21st century Western society is that we are not listening to that warning. We're not listening to Jesus' warning when he said that false teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing would come into the church. The evidence of this that I see whole movements of Christianity in the 21st century Western world who are saying many good things about Jesus and many right things about Jesus and the Christian faith. But there's a whole lot of things that are not being said. And there is such a thing as heresy by omission. And there seem to be whole church movements where very little is said about repentance and turning from wickedness and warning people about the judgment of God and about hell. 
for eternity for those who die without Christ. There are many churches who are saying good and wonderful things about Christ, but there are many things that are not being said, and I believe that that is something we need to be conscious of and aware of. These are the kind of false teachings that Jesus warned would come. And the church in Ephesus had taken very seriously that warning. And they were testing, you see. These apostles were coming, or people who were calling themselves apostles. And read 2 Corinthians and you'll, you'll see that these were very eloquent people, dynamic people, persuasive people, electricity in the air when they spoke. But they were false prophets in Ephesians. were listening carefully and testing and weighing what was said. And they were rejecting those who were found false. And Jesus commends the church for that. You have persevered and have endured hardships for a man, and you have not grown weary. I don't know about you, but that, that sounds like a good church. That, that's a church I'd go to, right? <laughs> if, if, if I visited the city of Ephesus and I visited that, that's a church I'd want to take my family to. They're working hard. There's church discipline. They're careful about their doctrine. They're, they're discerning in what they listen to. They're willing to reject false teaching. This looks like a healthy church. But the one who walks among the lampstands and whose eyes are like blazing fire sees beneath the surface and says this. But, but, I hold this against you. What a terrible thing. Have Jesus holding something against you. What an appalling thing. The Lord of the universe, the Saviour of the world, to be holding something against the church. And Jesus is holding something against the church in Ephesus. Despite their hard work and their discipline and their, their orthodoxy, he holds something against them. And we want to know what that is, don't we? You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. It's often translated, you have forsaken your first love. Well, first love, we all know what that is too. First love. That's that, that feeling of, of intense desire and passion you have for another, you know, husbands and wives think back to when you first met each other and you fell in love and there was passion and electricity, first love. That must be what Jesus is talking about. That the Ephesian Christians must have fallen in love with Jesus and felt almost a sense of romantic passion and desire for Jesus. And that love and the softened dogs had faded and failed. And Jesus is rebuking them, perhaps like an old 
husband or an old wife. You don't love me anymore like you used to. And we might get the impression that that's what Jesus is saying here to the church in Ephesus. It is not. It's not what he means. It's not what he means at all. What he means becomes very clear in the very next verse. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. The evidence that they had forsaken their first love for Christ was not a loss of, necessarily, not a loss of, of, of feeling or romantic desire. What they had lost was the repentant acts that they had done when they first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. When they had first heard that call, repent of your sin and to turn to Christ. Like those people in Ephesus who were caught up in sorcery and who took their magic books and each book might have been a large inheritance for their children. And yet they took those books and they burnt them to ashes. Repentance. That's what repentance is. And people who had been worshipping Artemis and the silver statues of Artemis turned their backs on that. Turned their backs on it so that the, the, the trade in silver idols collapsed in the city of Ephesus. What Jesus is saying, brothers and sisters, is that that period of repentance, that time where they were actively turning from their sin, they weren't doing that anymore. They were learning to put up with their own sin. They weren't actively repenting of their sin anymore. And that's what Jesus was holding against them. They'd given up repenting. And that's why he goes on to say, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's a threat. Let's not sugarcoat it. It's a simple threat. Jesus is in his love saying to this church, if you don't go back repenting, then I'm going to snuff this church out. I'm going to put its light out. It's no longer going to be a church. That's how serious Jesus is about the reputation of his name. He could snuff that church out. But, you have this in your favour. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And no one knows who the Nicolaitans are anymore. And people speculate and people guess, no one knows. Followers of some guy called Nicholas, who thought bad things. We don't know who they are. What we do know is that Jesus hated it. And we, we, and we do know that he commends the church in Ephesus for also hating it. In other words, a Christian 
should be intolerant and hateful, intolerant of the things that Jesus will not tolerate, and a Christian should hate the things that Jesus hates. It's something that he commends you. So we see how Jesus is dealing so carefully, so sensitively with the church in Ephesus. There's so much good going on. He said, you're working hard, the doctrine is there, you're being discerning. But you're not repenting like you used to. You're becoming complacent. You're learning to live with your own sin. You're getting used to it. But, yes, you still hate the things I hate, and that's good. And that's good. But the warning stands, doesn't it? The threat stands. Repent, or I will remove your lampstand from its place. And this is where Jesus says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Jesus knew that whoever heard this letter, that of any body of people listening to this letter, that there would be some who would hear it, Yes, they get the sounds of it, they'd hear it, they'd even understand it, but they would do nothing in response to it. And so Jesus says, don't do that, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't listen to what I'm saying, don't understand what I'm saying, and, and, and then go out of the, this building as though nothing's changed, as though nothing's different. Everything must be different as a result of hearing the words of Jesus Christ. Nothing can be the same. How can we possibly walk out of this, out of those doors the same, having heard the Lord, the Savior, speaking to us, warning us, correcting us? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I pray the Holy Spirit is indeed applying the words of Jesus to your heart and mine, and my heart and mine, right now. The one who is victorious, in other words, the one who does go back to repentance, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise rock. The church in Ephesus had become a classic second-generation church. Hadn't it? Classic second-generation. The first generation. There's the fire, hard work, orthodoxy, Second generation, hard work, orthodoxy, the fire of repentance, the cooling. And we would be fools not to ask ourselves this morning, is that us? Is that us? You have inherited 
doctrinal orthodoxy in this church. The doctrinal statement of faith of our church is, I believe, one of the finest summaries of the truth of Scripture ever penned. The Westminster Confession of Faith. One of the finest statements of doctrine ever penned by human beings. And that's our doctrinal statement. We have a wonderful statement of orthodoxy. And if anyone from the front of this church or in a Bible study or in a youth group is teaching wrong doctrine, untruth, then that is corrected. That's brought, or it ought to be brought to correction by the church. What I'm, what I'm getting at is that we are, I believe, orthodox. We've got the right doctrine. We've got the truth here. And I also see tremendous hard work in this church. I really do. I'm in awe. I, I, I'm paid. I work hard, but I'm, I'm paid full time. What a privilege. What an honour to be paid to the work I do in the church. Tremendous honour, and I thank you for that. But I see so many volunteers, so many who are part-time working far beyond, far beyond what they're paid. I see tremendous hard work right across the church. I see a church that has its shoulder to the wheel. So we have to listen to what Jesus is asking. Are we repenting? When we see sin in our lives, are we turning our back on it? Are we going back to those works that we did at first? When we first became Christians and repented of our sins, are we going back to them? Are we burning the books of it all? Getting rid of those, those, those silver idols like the church in Ephesus. And it's awful to have to ask that when it comes to sexual sin and pornography, are you repenting? And repentance is not just a feeling of regret and shame. It is taking steps, practical steps, so that you will not go on with sexual sin or pornography. And if that means throwing your smartphone, not, not throwing it away, if that means smashing it, if that means smashing your laptops, you do it. Do it. Ephesians burned their millions of dollars of books. Do what it takes. Jesus says, cut off the right hand, gouge out the right eye. Do whatever painful, humiliating thing you may need to do so that you will not go on in your sin. You want to eat from the tree of life? I do. You want to be in the paradise of God? I do. Well, it's for those, Jesus says, to overcome. It's for those who overcome. The husbands who aren't looking after their wives. 
The wives aren't submitting to their husbands. The children aren't honoring their parents. The workers who aren't honoring their, their managers, the business owners. We need to repent of this. We need to turn from this. We can't go on any longer, Sister Jesus. We can't make up for it with your sound doctrine and your Westminster Confession of Faith. We can't make up for it with your hard work. It's got to be dealt with, says Jesus Christ. What about my greed? It may be yours. While so many suffer, and so many of our brothers and sisters suffer, will we keep going on in that, and will we repent of that? We take steps. And Jesus said, take that second coat and give it to the one who has none. He said that. The one who has no food, share. The one who has no money, share. Will we do that? When it comes to greed, will we take steps? I speak to you in love this morning. I want us all to be there in the paradise of God. All of us eating from the tree of life that Jesus describes here. And he says, again, it's for those who overcome. And he's spoken to us this morning. And the words of Jesus, let us remember, come with power. It's my prayer that they have come with power, with the Holy Spirit today. That our hearts and our minds have been challenged, that we might leave here changed because of the words of Christ. To the one who is victorious, he says, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I'll just finish with this. And James said this at the start of the service. If I could ask our, our elders, please, to stand. Thank you. We've got Raphael, James, Derek, Simon, and Des. Come and talk to these men. Come and talk to them. If you, if you have something you need to repent or thank God, Come and talk to these men. If you want prayer, come and talk to them. Come and talk to their wives. We have wonderful deacons as well. Come if you need help with what you've heard today. Don't, don't do it on your own. Come and talk. Let's pray together about this. And let me pray for you right now. Lord Jesus, thank, thank you for your love. <clears throat> thank you for what you've said to us today in your word. It's not me or any other person. It's, it's you who have spoken to us today, your living word. And we pray that we will have these listening ears. We pray that you might return us to that Love that we had at first. 
We pray that you bring us to repentance. Not just regret and remorse, but actual repentance. Lord Jesus, I long for each and every person here today. At the end of time, as we gather together in your paradise, eating from the tree of life, with those leaves that fill, a place where there's no more tears, crying, pain, sickness, and death. A place where you are present and you glory. I long for us all to be there together. And I pray that you might work repentance in our heart and lives and bring us there together. That we might glorify you together forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.